0: I would invite you to uh, take your copy of the scriptures or the Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you and turn uh, to the Gospel of John in John chapter 18, the passage that Pastor Ben read a few moments ago. This morning we look at the Passion of Christ through the lens of St. John as he records this final week of Jesus in John 18, and we're going to look in particular this morning at the trial of Jesus, at least phase one of the trial of Jesus, as he stands before the Roman governor Pilate. John devotes a large section uh, of his gospel to this interchange, this encounter between Jesus and the Roman procurator Pilate. That. Trial before Pilate begins at verse 28 of John 18 and extends through chapter 19, verse 16. 1828 through 1916. In verses 28 through 38 in John 18, John introduces us to phase one of the trial before Pilate, in which Jesus is brought uh, as a common criminal to the praetorium. Fortress Antonia. He's brought by his would-be executioners, and those who bring him are people who are part of the religious establishment, the high and mighty in religious circles in Jerusalem. And they bring him to Fortress Antonia, or the Roman Praetorium. It is the place where uh, Pilate is take, has taken up temporary dwelling. You see, Pilate normally lives in the city of Caesarea. If you've traveled in the Holy Land, undoubtedly you've been to Caesarea. The ruins there show that it was a, a particularly delightful city in this crusty dust and dusty um, crossroads of Judea. And that's where Pilate normally lived as he governed this backwater area called Judea, or as the Romans called it, Palestine. But because Passover was on, and because he wanted to keep a lid on any misdoing and riots, he chose to leave his comfortable palace in Caesarea and come to Fortress Antonia, to the Praetorium, which was affixed to the temple at Jerusalem, to take up temporary dwelling there. Undoubtedly, the word had gotten to Pilate that uh, days earlier that, that there had been a Jewish rabbi from uh, Nazareth, from Galilee, that uh, had made his way into the city, and he had been hailed as a king. In fact, uh, Pilate had undoubtedly heard that the people had torn down branches from the palm trees, uh, a sign of a conquering king, uh, a, a conquering war hero uh, in victory, returning from war, and And they'd waved their palm branches and they'd taken off their cloaks and laid it down as a red carpet. And the children had formed a parade singing and and praising this marvelous king. Undoubtedly, that word had come to Pilate as he took up dwelling in the praetorium. And John tells us that very early on Friday morning, probably around 5 a.m., that uh, the Jewish mob, the crowd... Came to the porch of Pilate. Look at the text. Get the picture in your mind's eye. The great representative of Rome's empire is in his headquarters. His word, Pilate's word, in this part of the country is law. He could make or break people. He could. uh, Uh, caused them to rise to the highest height, or he could put them to death. And here on the porch of Pilate at Fortress Antonia, in the city of Jerusalem, there stands a man bound, brought by the Jewish mob. There stands a man. He's a rabbi. His name is Jesus. They were unwilling to go into Pilate's house. Because it was Passover time and a good Jew would not want to defile themselves. Pilate's house was to be avoided like the plague. A good Jew would never go in. But the Jewish mob had a job to do. You see, prior to verse 28 of John 18, uh, what you'll find out is that the religious trial of Jesus had already taken place. He'd been before Annas and he'd been before Caiaphas. And they had already determined the outcome and they were, they were involved in some political machinations to be able to get what they wanted. They had wanted Jesus to be put to death because he was a nuisance to the religious establishment and they wanted him to be done away with. But they did not have the power to crucify him in order to put him on a cross that had to be Rome's job. And so, the text tells us that very early one morning, Jesus is brought to Pilate. And before Pilate stands a man bound. John 18.28 says, Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. It's interesting all the interesting little details that Scripture includes. Why is it important to tell us it was early morning? Well, I think the detail helps us to understand that the the Jewish leaders wanted to get their job done early. Early bird catches the worm. They knew that they wanted to get this job done before the mob would uh, get in the way. You see, because the Jewish leaders realized that there were people in Jerusalem ready to celebrate the Passover who were acclaiming this Jesus, this rabbi, as a king. And so they wanted to get their work done under the cover of early morning light. So very early they come to Pilate's porch. And here is Jesus standing face to face with Pilate. Face to face, nose to nose, toe to toe. Rome's Palestinian ruler and Jesus, the Son of God. Eye to eye. This man that stood before Jesus, this man could seal Jesus' fate. And really what's interesting to me is that this trial before Pilate is not the trial of Jesus at all, but but really is Pilate's trial. Pilate is on trial before Jesus and not vice versa. Pilate has come to a defining moment, a watershed time in his life, a time to a fork in the road to make a decision. Here he is looking into the eyes of Jesus. Who is this man that was about to seal Jesus' fate and condemn him to a cross? Little history lesson. For seven years, uh, Pilate had already ruled in Judea. As the Roman administrator, he'd been vested with power from the emperor Tiberius. Certainly, Pilate had ambitions that were far greater than being stuck in this dusty crossroads of Judea. But Pilate was smart enough to know that in order to get back home in a better position in Rome, he had to do a good job in Judea he was not off to a very good start because historians tell us that the first fiasco that was created by pilate was that he had decided in order to please the crowd back in rome and notice i want you to notice this morning all the times that pilate is is influenced by the crowd that that the crowd back in rome in order to be pleased with pilate's work in judea Uh, Pilate decided that he would have uh, banners with the image of the emperor Tiberius uh, plastered on them and that these banners would be uh, affixed to the walls and put on, on, on lanyards all over this holy city of Jerusalem. Well, you can imagine, you can just imagine how the religious establishment reacted to that. In fact, historians tell us that in this horrible blunder of Pilate's, that the rulers of Jerusalem revolted by bearing their necks and exclaiming that they would rather be dead than have the idle image of Tiberius plastered across their holy city. And riots broke out all over the city of Jerusalem. And finally, it became so uncontrollable that Pilate had received a memo from Rome, from the front office, that said, Take, for heaven's sake take the banners down, let there be peace, get rid of the banners. So instead of being noticed by Rome for good things, Pilate, right out of the chute, was being noticed for bad things, poor leadership. Secondly, the second fiasco that involved Pilate was uh, when he tried to respond to the need for clean water. There was no money in the imperial treasury of Rome to build an aqueduct in Judea. So what Pilate decided to do was to take funds from the temple treasury. Oh, Pilate might have been a smart politician, but he sure didn't know much about church people. You never fuss with the church treasurer. The Jews did not like it. And riots once again broke out And instead of getting accolades from Rome, Pilate got another memo from Rome that said, Abandon the water project. Just just have done with it, Pilate. It's no use. Just forget it. And all of Pilate's dreams to become noticed by Rome so that he could climb the ladder and go back to Rome, to the beautiful city of Rome, all of those dreams were being dashed. You know, I think sometimes... uh, in re- rereading the story of the passion and rereading the story, in particular of Pilate, we're often pretty hard on Pilate. I understand Pilate, though, as I take time to to consider his predicament. He had a tough job, and I believe he worked very hard at it. And I believe he wanted to succeed, and he had dreams. But Pilate was smart enough to know that in order to succeed here in Judea, he had to be a crowd pleaser. He had to be a people pleaser. The crowd was the key to his success. And if we were honest with ourselves, I think that, that we would have to admit that we're an awful lot like Pilate in that. We have dreams too. And each of us, whether we recognize it as such, each of us has a crowd That will determine whether or not our dreams will come true. Maybe it's the people at work, or the crowd at the club, or the crowd at school. Maybe it's the family that raised you, or the friends that you've gathered around you that determines whether or not you'll achieve success. Your crowd may be comprised of customers, or clients, or patients, or students, or supervisors. Some of us seated here this morning may have a number of crowds that we're trying to please. Even preachers have their crowds. You'd be horrified, wouldn't you, to think that you've made the crowd your king? But that's exactly what the crowd is. It's exactly what the crowd is if it has the power to make your dreams come true what's interesting to me is that sometimes in our crowds we don't even like the people that are in the crowd now that doesn't apply here <laughs> but we please them we are at least we seek to please them and yet we don't even like them but we know that they are the key to us getting ahead And Pilate has learned that the hard way, through two particular fiascos recorded by historians. That he needs the crowd. The poll numbers are important to him. And so very early on a Friday morning, the crowd brings Jesus to his doorstep. Pilate was smart enough. He'd worked with these Jews long enough to know that they would never come into his house And so when he got word that the Jewish mob, the crowd, was on its way and that they had the rabbi Jesus with him, he knew that he would have to interrupt his work that morning and go out to the porch to find out what all the fuss was about because his house, again, to go in there would be to defile yourself and you could not celebrate Passover. And so he goes out to the porch and there is this bound rabbi standing before him. And here in the crowds, with a crowd shouting, Pilate uh, silences the crowd and he he asks the question, what are the charges against this man? I want you to notice that that they never really answer the question. Uh, The Jewish mob says, at least John's text says, that the crowd said, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Their answer really isn't an answer at all. In other words, what the the crowd was saying is, Pilate, don't worry about the details. Just trust us. We wouldn't have bothered you with nonsense. Obviously, uh, he's an evildoer. We've already determined that, and all we need you to do is to rubber stamp our decision. Pilate was a smart man. He understood what the crowd wanted. And he understood what they were asking him to do. They wanted this man, Jesus, killed and to be put on the cross. That's the only good reason that religious folks ever came to his house. They never came for tea. They only wanted him to do their dirty work. It was clear to Pilate that this man, Jesus, had already been slapped around and maltreated. The crowd claimed that he was a criminal. But as Pilate looked at him, and later as he interviews him, he determines that he had committed no crime. At least one that deserved crucifixion. And Pilate faces a horrible dilemma. He's caught betwixt and between. On the one hand, Pilate knew that he could not create another mess in Judea or he'd get another memo from Rome to say, back off, let down. But neither, on the other hand, Pilate did not want to be made the puppets of these Jewish religious leaders so that they would get the idea that they could push him around because he was, after all, the final authority in Jerusalem. So he decided to ask the man some questions. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but it it would be interesting if this week you wanted to look deeper into this passage to identify the number of times that Pilate goes between the outside and the inside of his fortress. He goes to the porch to hear the mob. He goes inside to interview Jesus. He goes back outside to clarify the situation. He goes back in. I think it's five different times he goes back and forth. And I think it's a picture of the way that Pilate is torn within himself to either please the crowd or to do what is right. Sadly, in the end, Pilate is a yellow-bellied chicken and does not do the right thing, but instead bows to the pressure of the crowd. So here is this rabbi inside his house, and he asks him a couple of questions. The first question he asks him is, "Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews?" You get the sense that Pilate's question is is half in jest. He's just kind of playing with Jesus, like a, a sideshow, a curiosity on the sideshow at the circus but but as we see Pilate sees more we didn't read the whole exchange we didn't go into chapter 19 but the next chapter chapter 19 verse 8 tells us that actually Pilate was struck with fear in his encounter with Jesus later on in chapter 19 we find out not only as he struck with fear and afraid about this whole situation but he gets a note from mrs. Pilate. We don't know her first name, but Mrs. Pilate writes him a note and she says, look, hubby, take a word from me. I just had some horrible nightmares. Don't have anything to do with this Jewish rabbi. And in the end, he does the quintessential act of cowardice and he washes his hands of the whole thing. And he says, I find no fault in him, but if this is who you want to crucify, this is your man. But his question, are you king, is a question that I think rings down through the annals of human history and it confronts you and me today. Are you a king? Is he really king of your life? Have you bowed before him as your king? Pilate, representing the most powerful force on earth, the empire of Rome, and Jesus the king. And as this encounter goes on, he says, well, you said, Jesus says, well, you say that I am. And he says, for this I came and for this I was born to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. And, and Pilate says, wait, 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 wait. And the second question, what, what is truth? Pilate's question. It's really the postmodern question today. Is there anything such as absolute truth? What is truth? Pilate says. I mean, we just finished a series called Inconvenient Truth and we've we've looked at the truths of scriptures about some very important issues and, and there are many other things that we could have discussed and we've seen that there are still thankfully there still are some absolutes in scripture. There was a day when there was a clear division between right and wrong. There were still absolutes. Unfortunately, today we live kind of in a fog, and many things are very vague. Pilate's question, what is truth, I think is a question that's being asked all across our world today. Is there really truth? Pilate uh, shrugs his shoulders at it says, what is truth? You know, he didn't know it at the time. But in that very moment when Pilate asked his second question, what is truth? He was looking truth in the eyes. He was face to face with truth. And if he'd only known... (laughs) When he asked the first question, are you king? If he'd only known or been courageous enough, he should have bowed at that very moment and said, I make you my king. When he asked that second question, what is truth? If he'd only known or if he'd only had enough character to say, I believe that you are the truth. And and I divorce myself from all these power plays of of Rome and climbing the ladder. and, And I embrace you, Jesus, as true truth. But again, Pilate was too controlled by the crowd. Pilate was looking truth right in the eyes. The man standing in front of him was the very personification of truth. And what did he do with that truth? Instead of embracing it, he rejected it. Because he really doesn't care about truth. All he cares about is getting back to Rome. Rome. And so he makes a feeble attempt at Roman justice, and and he says to the crowd, Shall I release this man to you? And eventually, he caves to the shouting mob, and he hands Jesus over to be crucified. And he does it just to keep the peace and to protect his job. Sadly, in the process of it all, because he's small in character, He misses the greatest opportunity of his life. To me, as I read the story of Pilate, it is an incredibly sad picture and a pathetic moment in human history. Jesus, are you king? Jesus, are you truth? And this morning, as, as we come to a close this morning, I, those are the two questions I want to, to leave with you. Is he king of your life, really? Is he really king of your life? Americans aren't much into royalty. I'm an exception. Anything English, I love. I'm an Anglophile. A couple of weeks ago, Barbara Walters had a a piece on that was a two-hour special about the royal family. You better believe I cleared my schedule and nothing was going to interfere with me getting an inside look at Buckingham Palace and the lives of the royals. But most Americans don't care about kings and queens. We're an independent lot. We pride ourselves on our freedom and our independence. Authority is not something that we like to have controlling us. We don't like the idea of submission or bowing or servanthood. We don't want big brother interfering and meddling in our lives. Less government, less control is what we want. Don't tell me what to do. And then the Scriptures come to us and says, If you would follow Jesus, you must make him your king. The problem with too many Christians today, I think, is this that we've been willing to make him our savior, but we're not willing to step across the line and make him our king, the Lord of our life, the leader of our destiny. Jesus, King? Is He King of your life? Jesus, truth? In this postmodern era, are we willing to admit that there one, there is One who is the truth? Jesus? The One who tells us the truth about who we are? The One who tells us the truth about where we came from and where we're going? The one who tells us the truth about our God-given purpose in this earthbound journey. The one who tells us the truth that creation matters. The one who tells us the truth about how we are to live holy and godly lives. The one who tells us the truth about God. And the question comes to us this morning, are we willing to bow to Him as King and are we willing to embrace Him as the truth? Jesus said, for this I came into the world. This was my purpose. I came into the world for this very thing, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Well, do we? Brothers and sisters, this may not come across as very profound or very relevant. It may come off as a bit legalistic and hard and heavy rules and, relation, rules and regulations approach to living but at the end of the day no matter how you slice it or shake it around the question in the Christian life comes down to obedience are we willing to listen to the voice of truth and obey it do we listen to the voice of Jesus really listen not just hear. do we listen not just take the information from him but listen Not just sympathize from the place where he's coming from, but listen. What did our mothers used to say to us? Now, listen, Ricky. What did she mean? What she meant was pay attention and do what I'm telling you to do. Listen. Will we? Jesus says, everyone who belongs to the truth listens, pays attention, does what he says. Will we listen? Or will we pull a pilot? Will we shrug our shoulders and ask, well, what is truth? What does it matter? I'm going to do what I want to do. Friends, listen. Listen. King Jesus is calling to us to a life of surrender and obedience. His ministry on earth is completed. Scriptures tell us as we read on in the Passion of Christ that as He was a condemned criminal and condemned to a Roman cross, that He wore a crown of thorns, a a purple coat of suffering, that He ascended the wooden cross throne, He bore our sins in His body on the tree, where He battled the greatest of evil powers. There he descended into the fortress of evil, into death. And it is from that place that he rose as the victor, Jesus the King. And the crown of thorns that he wore on that day on Calvary has been replaced with a heavenly crown. And the Jesus that you and I are now worshiping and serving is now the exalted Lord who is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is now the victor and he has established himself as the king the question is are we willing to bow before him as the king jesus stands in heaven right now as the faithful witness firstborn of the dead ruler of the kings of the earth Christ the King. And one day, the Scriptures tell us that this same Jesus, our King, will return on the clouds, the same clouds that hid Him when He ascended into heaven, that one day our King is coming in glory, riding on the clouds, and that every eye will see Him and every knee will bow. Every eye will see Him. Every knee will bow, even those who pierced Him. Peter Olson a 20th century artist prepared this complex work of art. I know because of the lighting it's pro- and the distance, it's probably hard to make it out. I think it would be worth your looking it up on Google to find it. It's called Pierce. The artist is Peter Olson. And, and, and he writes, he paints this picture around the theme of Every Eye Will See Him. It's meant to speak of the various ways that our human actions over the years have pierced and continue to pierce jesus and in this painting let me just pull out a few things there's a, a money bag down there and and there is a, a picture of joseph stalin and a picture of anne frank and the the uh, Nazi symbol is there, and the Coca-Cola sign. Uh, talking about materialism, and a picture of Marilyn Monroe, and uh, thinking of fame and and power, and all those all those things. Every unholy word, every action, every everything that we've done that's contrary to the will of God. Each action of mine, when I didn't listen to Him, I didn't do what He told me to do. I didn't listen to Him in which I failed to obey Him, every twisted look, every distorted thought, every lustful imagination, they were all putting another thorn in the crown of Jesus that He wore to the cross. Were we there on that day at Golgotha? We weren't there physically, but our sins were there. My sins nailed Him to the tree. Your sins nailed Him to the tree. He bore them in His body for our sake that we might know redemption. And as the great hymn says, Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Listen, that's the raw, hard truth for every one of us. But I want to give you some good news. With that truth comes an even greater truth. Because of the cross of Christ, Jesus loves us so much that He has freed us from our sins by His precious blood, that if we would just put our faith and trust in Him and surrender to Him as King and accept His truth and listen, listen to Him, if we'd only surrender our lives, He will usher us into an abundant life. Listen to me. Surrendering and obeying Jesus does not limit or lessen your life. Listening to Jesus explodes the abundant life before you. And you can live a life that's full and meaningful. Surrendering to King Jesus is life-giving medicine for our souls. Who is your King? What is your truth? Who is your source of hope and Who is the one that informs your choices and measures for life? As Pilate discovered, you cannot compromise your way out of this choice. You can't avoid it. You must choose. What have you done with Jesus? Who is your king? The crowd? Or King Jesus? This morning we've been looking at the trial of Jesus, but in this particular story, it's not Jesus who is on trial, it's Pilate. And it's also you and I. In the end, Pilate was too much of a crowd pleaser to do the right thing. Instead, he sold his soul to the crowd. He sentenced Jesus to be crucified, but far worse in my estimation. Pilate sentenced himself to be a slave of the crowd. And I'm calling you this morning to do the right thing, to bow down and call him king, instead of being a slave to the crowd, to be a servant of Jesus. Instead of living in the vagaries of our postmodern world, to embrace Jesus as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is my King. And He is my truth. How about you? What have you done? With Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning we acknowledge you as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We affirm the words of Scripture, your words actually, that says that no one comes to the Father except through you. Unfortunately, Lord, many of us have have called on You as Savior, but fewer have called upon You as King. This morning, Lord, we pause at the beginning of this holy week. We pause to listen, to do what You've told us to do, to embrace the truth, to live as Your servant, to live as a, a life of surrender, Obedience. So this morning, Lord, rather than being dictated to by the crowd, we choose to bow before you as King and surrender our all to you. Speak, Lord, we surrender our all.